What are you two talking about? Oh, nothing. Just the end of the world. everyone and welcome to an exclusive who pods the watchman i'm grant and i'm clay and we need to apologize right up front because obviously this is not our typical audio quality we are both calling into each other doing a little phone recording this way because i want to go over a couple of the theories and a lot of the internet discussion that's going on after the events of episode four this is going to be a, a brief mini episode, but in particular, we wanted to really dive into a little bit more of the background information regarding two particular characters, Lady Trio and Will Reeves, who is looking more and more like Hooded Justice. So first off, Clay, I wanted to point out something that was so, someone else pointed out to me, and I don't know how this wasn't noticed or brought up more on forums about this, but... If you go to the Hooded Justice wiki bio page and you look at some of the trivia, one of the most fascinating uh, elements is that early on in the development of the Hooded Justice character, prior to him being named Hooded Justice, it looked like Alan Moore was looking to actually name him Brother Knight. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I mean, that seems that seems huge. That seems hugely significant, does it not? Yeah, I mean, it's a giveaway. Absolutely. Yeah. As far as the, the whole theory of could he potentially be Hooded Justice, now we have it that he's he's placed in New York City in the 40s and 50s, which is when he would need to be there to be one, part of the Minutemen. He wears purple and red all the time. The background of this character is that he was at one point going to be named Brother Knight, and his background history was that he was going to be a, a Nazi sympathizer. Now, what we saw in the beginning of episode two was that the Germans during um, World War One, I, I believe, were yeah, dropping World those War. pamphlets trying to um, solicit the African-American soldiers uh, over to the German side being like, hey, look, they're not even respecting your your rights or uh, your citizenship. Like, why are you even fighting for that side? If you take into context that there was this reaching out, even though we we know that is through manipulative purposes. Folding that in with this idea that he was a Nazi sympathizer in the backstory of Hooded Justice is kind of an interesting take on the character. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know how his life began, right? I mean, it wasn't like the United States government was doing him any favors. You know, whether it's conflating it or just mixing it up and making it interesting for the storyboard, it's pretty cool, and this is definitely fuel to the fire for people who think, you know, who've been speculating about who he is, whether it's on Reddit or wherever else. And I think, I mean, it's kind of done now, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I, I would say this is all but, like, confirmed by the show. Let me ask you, knowing more of his story from the comics and everything, and I mean, I know that I was looking at this as well after you told me about it today, and it's funny that they say in the movie, which, you know, who cares, Hooded Justice is only heard to speak one line, and it actually sounds potentially German or maybe even Irish or British. So, I mean, that's not canon, right? 
Yeah. But it is interesting that, that when you think about him being a sympathizer and everything like that. But do you think that this is going to color your take on the character or, I mean, or maybe help you predict where it's going to go from here? A little bit. In fact, that's a little bit more of what I want to discuss, especially as Will Reeves' character's storyline has sort of dovetailed with Lady Trio. And that's the other aspect of this little podcast mini that I want to discuss with you. A lot of people have now discovered that Lady Trio is based on a real-life, I'm going to say, quote-unquote, historical figure, because there's a lot of mythology that seems to be kind of wrapped up with the historical tale of this Vietnamese Joan of Arc character that held the name Lady Trio. Yeah, you got to be careful with that, because I saw online where people are apt to get angry about everything and anything that uh, I guess it's offensive to say that she's the Vietnamese version of Joan of Arc, when really Joan of Arc came later. So we should be saying Joan of Arc is the French version of Lady Trio. Fair, completely fair. Because it was, that was 1,300 just... years different. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I just saw that a few times and I thought, oh, my God. Yeah. Well, that's that's the tagline that's on the Wikipedia page. And I think as far as a contextual frame of reference, a lot of people will be a lot more familiar uh, in the U.S. with the Joan of Arc story, but absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, no. So yeah, I mean, and, and to talk about if she existed at all, I guess you know there's evidence to say she did. But yeah, I mean, she was described as nine feet tall with breasts three feet long, a voice like a temple bell. She could walk 500 leagues in a day, and she had a husband named Paul Bunyan and a blue ox named Babe. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, we don't really know how much is true, but it is interesting that, you know, she was based on somewhere. She she was someone who kind of gathered the troops and gathered the local populace against the Chinese occupation. And she was able to actually, by the time she was 21 years old, I guess she fought over 30 battles until she was finally defeated. Ever resolute, she did not want to concede defeat. So she just threw herself into a river and committed suicide rather than being captured or killed by the Chinese. So... Very, very interesting. A very formidable figure and uh, definitely a good a good namesake for Lindelof's character. Yeah. There's this quote they have on Wikipedia that is attributed to her. And I thought it was kind of badass. It's, I'd like to ride storms, kill sharks in the open sea, drive out the aggressors, reconquer the country, undo the ties of serfdom, and never bend my back to be the concubine of whatever man. And that was in response, I believe, not knowing the whole thing, but I believe that was in response to her uh, to her brother when he asked her not to start or lead the rebellion. She kind of she was about to go up to the mountaintop, get all the local villagers, and he said, "Please don't do that. Just come back home and just do your thing here," you know. And that right. was her response. So a pretty good a pretty good response. She knew what she wanted yeah. to do. <laughs> she scripted this out in advance. Yeah, something I think is interesting and kind of you know parallels the story is that I guess she was orphaned and lived with her brother. I know that we have a bunch of theories, or, or you did. You kind of brought them to my attention, and I think they're great about uh, who her daughter may be. You know, right in the in the TV show. Well, so yeah, the the idea that Beyond is potentially her daughter, but also maybe her mother is a pretty fascinating theory. So the theory goes that she has a facility that allows her to um, genetically manipulate and birth children, but she also might have been potentially cloning individuals. In particular, her daughter might be actually a genetic clone of her mother. Um, who, who died in a, in, a, in a village, I guess, during the Vietnam in, War 
and right. might still have and might still have memories of that kind of encoded in her DNA or something. I mean, I don't know. You know, I'm not a scientist, well, but I, I think that's one of the good areas to kind of dive a little bit deeper into why Vietnam is so important to the story of Watchmen. In the original comic, Vietnam is annexed as the 51st state of the United States after the existence of Dr. Manhattan and his intervening in the Vietnam War uh, makes a clear U.S. victory. The U.S. annexes Vietnam as the 51st state, and now we are 30 years in the future, or 40 years in the future from the Vietnam War, and the effects of that are already being hinted at in the show, that they are a part of the U.S., but I'm not sure they're over any degree of of resentment that might be surrounding the events of the war and the the annexation. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, and I think uh, two things on that. The first is that I think viewers, or not viewers, I guess readers back in the 1980s would have totally caught on to that. And I think that would have been more powerful seeing, you know, more powerful than it is today, another 30 years removed. You know, in the 80s, of course, the Cold War is winding down, but at the same time, very much still in effect. And I think maybe that the loss in Vietnam was maybe a fresher wound, you know, for a lot right. of people. And so that would have stood out a lot more and jumped out on the page a lot more than I think it does today whenever we've moved on. And we've, you know, unfortunately had more armed conflict since then. And number two, I always, I always did think that was interesting. I remember back in, you know, undergrad and stuff, reading travel magazines, and they would say, oh, you know, Vietnam is the number one place to go backpacking right now. And it's so, and, you know, and it's such a great place to just rent a motorcycle and go up and down Vietnam. And I remember thinking, like, that's just so bizarre to think about doing that. You know, I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, we can travel and we're unfortunately, again, we've been in a lot of conflicts with a lot of countries. And, you know, even like when I was in Mexico a few months ago, it was, of course, during the whole fiasco and horrible situation at the border. And I remember feeling bad, you know, I mean, you have these people who obviously know I'm an American and they're being really nice to me and helping me with directions and stuff. I remember thinking like, oh my God, this is just awful. So it it is funny that like, yeah, I mean, it's still a fresh wound. People from people in Vietnam and probably people in the United States, of course, who are more pacifists than war hawks or whatever, probably don't like the idea that Vietnam is a 51st state and that we're still there and that it is probably, you know, although we call it a state and they change the, the American flag, it's probably more like an occupation. I doubt it's hunky-dory, and uh, we'll probably see some of that, which is going to be really exciting and interesting. Absolutely. And you already started talking about a lot of the parallels between the Lady Trio of the Watchmen and the historical figure. A couple things I'd like to point out. She's often depicted riding a white elephant. That was really interesting because your Cubes moment from episode four was them drinking out of those mugs, which we thought were just kind of these throwaway, like, cute, quirky little mugs that had an elephant trunk handle on them. But obviously, that is a tie-in to the Lady Trio figure, as well as the egg timer. And when she's in the Clark's house, she flips over that egg timer, and it's got white elephants on the design of it. That's right. So, So they're giving us all these clues that obviously she's a link to that individual. They say that Lady Trio, the historical figure, wore this iconic yellow robe, this gown. Yeah. Yeah, And that color is just perfect. That is the iconic color of the Watchmen, the yellow. And I, I can totally see the parallels that she's going to start donning a costume like that. Or even if she doesn't, it just seems like it's perfectly in line with the yellow that has become emblematic of the show. Then she's a leader who was attempting to free her people. On that note, 
now we have a reason to kind of suspect motivation for mm -hmm. Lady Trio and what she might be doing with this Millennium Clock. And perhaps this trillionaire is not operating out of a, a pure altruism here. What do you think, Clay? I really thought she just wanted to help the people of Tulsa um, tell time. <laughs> yeah, that's all. You know, if you forget, if you forget, if you don't have a wristwatch or you forget your cell phone, you you always know you're never going to be late. So there's still no excuse. Right, right, right. Here's where I'd say it, it starts getting a lot more interesting. There's a mention that her daughter, Beyond, she's on this IV drip, and then right. she comes out of the room to tell her mother that she's remembering these, these visions of, of Vietnam and that her feet actually physically hurt right. from these visions from whatever happened. And meanwhile, you have Lady Trio sitting at the table talking to Will Reeves, which it's also notable, I think, that Will Reeves and Lady Trio both have these fake pseudonyms they've given themselves, this, this new identity they've kind of taken on based yeah. on other historical figures. With uh, him, he's based off of uh, Bass Reeves from the video when he was a kid. And she's obviously uh, tying herself to the identity of Lady Trio. But they're talking about how they are manipulating Sister Knight. And they make mention, she says, why don't you just tell her rather than using this passive-aggressive exposition? Yeah, she thought it was kind of self-indulgent, right? And that is what's kind of leading, I think, a lot of people to believe there is more going on to the drugs that he's taking and the IV drip that uh, Beyond is taking. Do you think she has a hand in this? Well, Obviously, gotta, she has a hand in the, in the IV that her daughter's taking, but that's interesting thinking about the pills. We got a theory from one of our listeners, which I kind of wanted to read. This is from Steve Jones. He says, I think that the medicine that Beyond and Will are taking somehow allow their taker to access memories of their ancestors encoded in their DNA, and that, and he says this is Trio's squid, like the squid attack is what she's planning, creating empathy by forcing white Americans to confront their slave-owning past, changing wow. thinking about inherited trauma, etc. It would explain why Beyond is remembering Nam and why Trio refers to Will's pills as passive-aggressive exposition. If Angela took them, she'd remember his life. I also predict that Looking Glass will, in the next episode, uh, use those pills in a way as a vehicle to explore his past, because I guess he's holding on to the pills now. Right. Wow. And maybe the Millennium Clock will somehow cause a widespread legacy of ancestral memory. Wow. This is right? reminding me of, I know you read it or listened to it after I had, Children of Time. Yes. I mean, I don't want to ruin it, but there was some manipulation of, I don't know, like the gene pool, but of our own human nature that made us kind of a better it made us more peaceful. More evolved, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow, that's really interesting. I did not think of that. And I think, where are those pills right now? Are they in the – oh, that's right. Yeah, they were in the glove compartment, and then now they're with our uh, our favorite guy. Yeah, okay. Huh. Right. I mean, again, I, I don't know if that's how everything will um, pan out, but I thought that was a pretty fascinating theory, this idea that she's attempting some, her own kind of squid attack it seems more and more likely that she's more involved with whatever happened to Vate or Vite than yeah. it being Doc Manhattan. Um, yeah, I agree. Then this kind of leads to this idea like, okay, maybe she is looking to hold America accountable for its past actions 
in the destruction of uh, her mother and and part of uh, her ancestry, her, her childhood, her past, her country, it being uh, annexed into the U.S. And maybe she is trying to make everyone have a, a forced reckoning in a way that we clearly are avoiding on our own <laughs> otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think with this added context from Wikipedia about this historical figure, I think this gives us a lot more focus on her character, you know? Right. Obviously, I, I mean, I kind of just thought of her as someone who was maybe connected to Vite. Maybe she was helping bring him back, or maybe she was going to enact her own version of what he did before. But now I think in no uncertain terms, we can almost put this not only in kind of a racial context, but also of a, you know, kind of like a cultural nationalistic kind of anti-occupation type thing as well. It's not just going to be kind of race relations. It's not, it's not, it's no longer just like this localized Tulsa, Oklahoma thing, or even just the American experience. Although saying that, of course, war is part of the American experience. I just did not think Lindelof was maybe going to go as, as broadly as he is now. So this is, this is pretty interesting. I mean, we, we still do not really know if this is just, you know, just theorizing, but yeah, the, the internet is pretty good at this game. <laughs> like people have gotten really well, savvy to uh, kind yeah. of ciphering out the, the kind of storyline. And I remember that with the leftovers, he did for seasons two and three. And one of the reasons they're so good is because he kind of got a bigger team and he would bounce ideas off of them. And um, he had people who were kind of specialists in history, specialists in pop culture, specialists in religion and music, et cetera. And that's why we had such a really rich contextual piece of work there in, the, in, episode, in seasons two and three. So I assume he's kind of doing the same thing here, which might show, you know, I don't know if he was just doing this on his own. Would he really find this you know, like character? from ancient Vietnamese history? Probably not. So it's, it's pretty interesting. I love how everything's kind of tying in. And I, I guess the, the last little point I, I wanted to kind of examine here is this kind of brings us back to this mystery from the introduction of episode four of what was it that crashed into the field, into the farm in the beginning when she bought the land she said, it's mine. And there was the idea of like, potentially it's Vite escaping from his planet and he finally figured yeah. out an escape and he's crashed into there. Some people are speculating that the statue we see in her vivarium is him. Like he's frozen in carbonite or something. I kind of hope that isn't the case. That's, that seems like weirdly twilight zone. Little, little star Wars, little star Wars. Yeah. But what if she's not calling bite back down, but she's actually called uh, Dr. Manhattan back to earth. Maybe the whole Millennium Clock was able to suck him out of wherever he was back to Earth. And wouldn't it be all the sweeter if she was able to use America's Superman against them to somehow destroy from the center, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, the center of the U.S., take a, a big hit against the U.S. and, like, actually destroy them? Yeah, I mean, I think – and that's pretty interesting because obviously Manhattan was the reason we – I say we – um, the parallel version of we won the Vietnam War. And mm -hmm. later on in the episode, they talk about how Tulsa is the safest place in the United States because it, there's, it's not on a fault line. There's no volcanoes. There's, you know, there's, I don't, are there tornadoes? I don't know. You know, anyway, it's a really safe place. So, yeah, if they can strike at the heart of America, that would be, uh, that'd be pretty poetic. A lot of food for thought there in uh, this little mini. I think there's a, Again, this is all just kind of speculation, and hopefully it's not considered too much of a spoiler if it doesn't actually manifest. And hopefully that doesn't ruin people's viewing experience. This is just kind of part of what I think is the fun 
aspect of, of diving in and, and just speculating a bunch. Yeah, and I wouldn't worry too much about ruining anyone's time. I mean, you know, if you're listening to a phone call podcast <laughs> happening midweek, you're probably doing your own internet researching as well and speculation. So uh, I don't think we're surprising anybody here, but that's definitely good information. I didn't know it. I don't, uh, you know, I'm somebody who likes history and I had never heard of this figure. So I definitely learned something today. So thanks for bringing it to my attention. Yeah, man. We're going to go ahead and wrap things up here. I want to thank all of you guys for tuning in and checking this out. And if you guys want to go help and support us, of course, you can go to patreon.com slash watchman, make a $5 pledge per month or whatever, and we would appreciate all of your support. And we'll be back on Sunday night to talk about episode five, which this is a mid-season episode, and it's a looking class. It's got to be just like um, absent. What was the what was the one that was? Uh, I forget the name of the issue, but it's a Rorschach one where it's split in oh, half, yeah. and the first half mirrors the second half. Yeah, it's not the perfect symmetry one, but uh, maybe it is. I don't fearful yeah. symmetry. That's what it's called. Yeah. Fearful symmetry. Yeah, I'm hoping it, it they attempt something like that. We'll see. I'm hoping that that Looking Glass gets bored opens up the pills, throws a couple back in the air, and we see him sailing through the air and then into his open mouth. And then he has these crazy <laughs> LSD-type, you know, hallucinations about his family back, you know, 100 years ago in Tulsa. Yes. That'd be so bonkers. I hope Steve Jones is right, and then we can have him on, uh, on, the, on, the, on the pod to chat about it. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Steve Jones. And, um, yeah, if you guys have your own thoughts, please let us know in the comments. And we look forward to talking with you guys on Sunday. See you soon. Bye. Bye.